My mom taught me to read when I was four, and initially it wasn't my happy place. I couldn't go out and play with my friends until I read a few pages, sometimes even a chapter of a book. I remember Paul Vanderus and Eric Shador hanging outside my window while I struggled to form words and comprehend sentences. And this wasn't Dick and Jane and C-Spot Run. My mom wanted me to fall in love with books. The first novel I crushed was at age five. It was Hans Brinker or The Silver Skates. It's a story about how a poor kid wearing makeshift skates beat out all the rich kids with all their trappings to win a prize that puts food on his family's table. Today, I couldn't be more grateful to my mom. She began a lifelong and fascination for reading. Stories of people that go against all odds, conquest, Bilbo and Frodo Baggins both leaving the comfort of the Shire, the four siblings of the Narnia series, Harry Potter, Katniss Evergreen. Yes, I am a Hunger Games fan. All of these stories follow what scholars have called the hero's journey. Someone who leaves their familiar world behind to go on an adventure. These people learn to navigate an unfamiliar world, battle opponents, overcome challenges, and meet people who help them get to where they want, need, and deserve to go. And then they return transformed with the power and desire to help others. If you're a fan of Chatter That Matters, you know that this is the arc I follow to share true stories of people, their lives and their circumstances. And why stories? Because we become vested in their journeys and their triumphs. We take what they do personally. In fact, storytelling is something I talk about when I deliver keynotes at conferences. I show how this form of communication can help brands and individuals counter the age of noise and get the attention they deserve. And all of what I do is possible because of RBC. We're both aligned with the need and desire to share stories of positivity and possibility to counter the storm of negativity and feelings of impossibility. My guest today grew up in the hood or the projects or whatever you want to frame a neighborhood where survival isn't guaranteed. Here, whatever street you live on or whatever direction you walk or ride your bike, you're battling relentless headwinds. And sometimes they're violent and sometimes they're deadly. And there's no refuge for what many in society frame as refugees, people without state or status. Here, families work tirelessly for food, and we create a cycle of poverty by investing resources in more police while leaving education stagnant. It's a feeding and breeding ground for law and order intimidation, and gangs and crime is often where you find your sense of community and purpose and prosperity. Imagine being a 10-year-old kid looking out your bedroom window. On one corner is your mom standing in a roofless bus shelter in the pouring rain for a bus that rarely comes, but must as she's on her way to her second job of the day. Across the streets is a drug exchange. and In a second, your best friend's life could end in a shower of bullets. Mental and health rarely connect, and PTSD is a virus that never leads you. Today, I'm going to chat with Curtis Carmichael. He's on a hero's journey of epic proportion. My guess is that one day, you might even vote for him. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Curtis Carmichael's knapsack of experiences is full, especially for a young man. He's the author of the book and augmented reality platform called Butterflies in the Trenches. He's an award-winning social entrepreneur, technologist, STEM and hip-hop teacher, computer programmer, and the former director of Code Ninja's franchise. His cross-Canada cycling tour, Ride for Promise, raised funds for Toronto community housing after-school programs, and he was featured in an award-winning documentary. In his spare time, he is Team Canada duathlete for the 2021 Multisport World Championships. 
Curtis, when you open up a bottle of water, what do you do first before taking your first sip and why? That's what we call a hood spiritual. Uh, basically, when we grow up in neighborhoods like ours, uh, living in poverty, we lose a lot of people to uh, either the streets or to natural causes or some freak accidents. So in order to preserve their memory, we decide to, um, usually it's alcohol, but usually we pour it uh, when we open it because uh, we see that they drink before we drink. It's like a way to live uh, selflessly where you think of the collective uh, before you as an individual. So when we pour some before we drink some, it's just a way to honor those that we've lost along the way and to always keep their memory alive. What's it like as a young person carrying all of these memories? And we're not just talking about elders that passed away or someone that might have had a horrific illness. I mean, we're talking about people that you were playing with this on the street one day and they're gone the next it's 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 tough. Um, paying homage is uh, like we said. It's like a spiritual practice, right? Many of those who aren't with us anymore. It, it's hard because in a community like ours, um, when you live in in a disenfranchised community, you have a social emotional connection to people. When you live in a more affluent neighborhood, which I've come to experience living there now, is that people tend to have a social emotional connection to a close circle, not necessarily everyone in their neighborhood. So in our community, because we're connected to every individual, every single family. Each death or each loss weighs very heavy um, on us. So carrying those memories is a very difficult experience because everyone you lose, blood or not blood, it all feels like you're losing a family member. So it's very difficult um, to carry those, but it's definitely something that we try to do, but we don't necessarily have the mental health resources to, to cope well, so we tend to self-medicate. When I heard one of your interviews and you talked about the fall of 2004, you talk about three people who died, a woman who crashed to the earth, then Blue Boy and Isaiah. How did that impact you? What happened and why did those three things become really one of the lightning bolts that made you decide that you're going to do something about it? By the time I was 11, I lost 10 people in my life. Pretty much one person a year. That's someone close to me. So that, that summer was difficult, um, losing all those people, because I started to become aware that a lot of my friends that went to, to war in the military it's normal for them to prepare to go to war. They're kind of prepared to see what they see, but they usually come back with PTSD, a lot of other mental health distress, mental illnesses. And then when I thought of my neighborhood, in hindsight, we see the same stuff. We see a lot of loss of life, a, a lot of violence, a lot of murder, a lot of crime, but we're not prepared to see it. That summer um, was difficult because now you have a, a kid who's trying to figure out how do you live and be a kid if you feel seven, but then in reality, what you see, you're 21. So I think that was the reality that I saw growing up. I really wanted to see the contrast between the military and modern day war zones that I call low income communities. But that's what uh, the difficulty was for that summer. And your mom and dad, you, you talk often, weren't around a lot. They're out there working. They're just trying to make ends meet. But they also taught you some incredible lessons in life, lessons that you carry with you today. So maybe we'll start with your your dad. What What did he bring to the table that you can still pull out of that knapsack as you move on with your life? Yeah. So my, my parents are, they're, they're the lifeblood of our community, right? So a, a lot of their perspectives, they taught me two things. Uh, one of those is the importance of Ubuntu. Ubuntu is an African philosophy where I am because we are. So you believe that we're all connected to humanity. So in my family, we're very focused on the collective before the individual. We're very focused on the we before the I. And that's kind of the neighborhood that we grew up in, which is very different than other realities that some people grow up in. But for me, that was my family. Another thing that my parents also taught me 
was the importance of looking out for one another, blood or not blood. We all have natural talent, natural skills, and we all have something to contribute to the community. So they taught me the concept of community circles. Uh, community circles is something that exists across all African diaspora, and it also exists across many indigenous communities where the most vulnerable are at the center of community. You have the, the toddlers and the babies in the center, then the elementary kids around them, then the high school kids, then the young adults around them, and then you have the parents and the grandparents and elders around them. So they taught us that this is what community is, and all of us have a role to play in this bigger picture. Um, and that's kind of what uh, the philosophy of both of my parents taught me. And I read that later in life, you found out that your dad, who made, you know, both your parents made an incredible sacrifice leaving their home to come to Canada. He was an accomplished cyclist. Yeah, my dad was a very accomplished cyclist. Uh, the, the moral of his story was uh, he grew up in, in Guyana, in South America, I was one of uh, 10 siblings. So he always used to uh, work to provide for the family as well to contribute, but he also used to ride his bike a lot. So he was an amateur cyclist competing with pro cyclists in Guyana, and he was beating them. Um, so that's kind of like my dad's story of how he loved the bike. But knowing his story, he had to actually give up the bike uh, to take on a few extra jobs. So he stopped competing pro and just to provide for the family. So, But when he came here to this country, in hindsight, it, it showed me why he gave us the bike as something that he was so proud of is because it was so part of who he was as a person. I think a lot of young people are seeing that, yo, success is not making it out. It's making your life and your community better. And once you read widely, think critically and question everything, uh, you really can see that you're all gifted. We just need the right time and an environment to live out that potential soul. My special guest is futurist, author, teacher, speaker, and activist, Curtis Carmichael. Curtis, I read every word of Butterflies in the Trenches. It's a beautiful book. What was your motivation, though, for writing it? Yeah, so I have many motivations for writing my book, but the number one motivation is that uh, when I was a child, I actually was looking for a book about someone who broke the cycle of poverty. Um, I couldn't find it, um, so I decided to write it. And when I look back at my childhood, we live in a neighborhood where we live under colonial systems. So basically what that means is uh, structural racism exists across all major institutions. So from education, employment, housing, healthcare, homelessness, and the criminal justice system. Knowing this reality, it creates a, an environment where we have conditions where we're forced to survive by any means. So under this reality, having a book about someone who broke the cycle and equipped other people to do the same, I knew that this would be essential for young people to read in order to be empowered to do the same thing. So I wrote the book, Butterflies in the Trenches, for two key reasons. And one was to prove that the most innovative and talented place in the world was actually the hood both locally and globally. And I also wanted to write not a feel-good story, not a self-help guide, but actual blueprint to prepare kids for the future and to break the cycle. The title, Butterflies in the Trenches. When you shared that with me, I thought it was just absolutely magical, that metaphor. And I, I'm hoping you'd share the, the meaning behind it with, uh, with the listeners. Yeah, so Butterflies in the Trenches, a lot of people are like, those two don't go together. <laughs> but basically, uh, Butterflies in the Trenches was uh, an inspiration from something called uh, biomimicry. Biomimicry is a concept where you use nature as an inspiration to solve a problem in a regenerative way. So I looked to nature when I was actually designing my book. And then I found out that butterflies actually, the only way they could survive and reproduce is to get minerals and nutrients from the mud. I thought that was so interested that the building box for their future was where they came from. 
So that's when I thought of, of kids in disenfranchised communities globally. I knew that where we came from, we can't leave it behind because it's actually the building blocks for our future. So I decided to call it Butterflies in the Trenches to talk about butterflies in the trenches locally and globally. And it's one of the first, if not the first, where you combine augmented reality so the opportunity to bring the pictures to life and to uncover hidden stories within the book. I know that you're you're a coder and a programmer, but curious is what you're hoping people will get when they start immersing themselves in a book that's not linear, but is more almost like a roller coaster. You can go in and out of it. Yeah. So basically, uh, there's a quote I came across that said, art is the highest expression of the human spirit. So I wanted people to intersect with my story in a more and more immersive way. So beyond the words in the book, there's actually a hundred photos in the book and a lot of the photos are tagged. So with the app that's going to be released shortly, you can actually scan the photos throughout the book and it displays interactive video and audio elements and also 3D experiences with the whole purpose of, I want people to have all five senses when they're reading the story, whether you're from the neighborhood or not, I want to fully immerse them in the context. I didn't know it would be the first, uh, the world's first augmented reality memoir. It's just something I decided to do because I'm like, how better to connect with a story than to see it, to feel it, to taste it, to smell it. Um, and that's what we decided to do. When I read your book, it reminded me a little bit of Andre Agassi's autobiography. It's very personal. It's not about look what I'm doing and what I've done, but it's more about what I've experienced and why it matters. And I, I'm hoping that you could read the note that you offer the readers so that you can personally invite them into the story that you're about to tell. Yeah. Um, the note to readers at the beginning of the book says this. This book is a work of nonfiction, and it explores a world rooted in injustice. The effects of this injustice are personal to me, and they impact many in my community, in neighborhoods like mine, around the world, and the people we met along the way. Sometimes in life, the only way to connect the dots is to look backwards. That's what writing this book has taught me. As you read, take care of your mind and heart, pause, rest, and take a breather if needed, we are living in difficult times. Remember to hold on to the truth that always remains solid throughout history and the present. Where there's people, there's power. Stay safe. Keep your head up. More love. One love. And I love the way you put this, maybe it's a tension or this polarity. You know, you're talking about the injustices and you're talking about the pain. But at the same time, you talk about the power of people to do better, to find a way through this. And that's really, in some ways, the cord that runs through your life, isn't it? That you do take the trenches that you live through and use it as minerals to find a way to say, we can grow these roses in the concrete. I think what I want readers to get from the book, I wanted them to know that, uh, yeah, success is not making it out. It's making your life and your community better. And I think in reading my story, um, they'll be able to read widely, think critically and question everything. And in doing so, they'll start to gain access to the resources that help me break the cycle, which is uh, stuff that was historically excluded from our communities, which is uh, financial literacy, um, STEM and STEAM education, mental health and wellness, uh, business and entrepreneurship, all those kinds of things that are not in our public school system. These are the things I knew once they read widely, uh, they'll be able to gain access to. And at the end, uh, they'll understand that they have gifts and values that contribute to the world. Uh, we just need to write environment and platform and timing to unwrap our gifts. You know, you talk about the currents in the hood and you just said that not only where I grew up, but globally is also a hotbed of innovation. But at the same time you go, that's not being fostered in the educational system. In fact, you use a quote by Angela Davis that says, when children attend schools that place a greater value on discipline and security 
the knowledge and intellectual development, what they're doing is attending a prep school for present. You're not a fan of the way people are getting educated in your communities. Tell me why and tell me what needs to change. The difference for me is I'm a, I'm a former elementary teacher. I'm speaking from someone who's been in the system. One of the main reasons why is because I started to look in neighborhoods. And I remember hearing the quote by Albert Einstein that necessity is the mother of all invention. And I started to, to realize that in our environments, um, you have to be creative and resourceful in order to survive by any means. So in our communities, innately, everyone in the environment is able to tap into a different part of their brain where they can build businesses, create inventions, and they have creative ways of doing things that I've never seen in any other community in the world. So in the book, you see the story of Dr. Alex in my neighborhood who built a motorcycle out of a broken bike and a lawnmower engine. And this provided faster transportation for community members who lived in a food desert, basically. Um, another story of William Kumkwamba uh, from Malawi who built an electricity producing windmill out of blue gum trees and older bike parts. Uh, this saved his family from famine and it also provided enough power to power the irrigation pumps. So they're able to grow stuff and they had electricity for all their homes. And the last story I'll show you here is that four girls in Nigeria uh, started to realize a lot of families were dying because the generators that are powering the homes, the fumes are toxic and they didn't want people to die anymore. So they actually created a urine powered generator and that's a renewable resource and this was a regenerative way for them to do it and their branding was p for power so these are the kind of innovative stuff i'm thinking of that isn't able to flourish in our school system because they look at our communities locally and globally as if we have no skills no talent no competencies and no abilities to create so i think a lot needs to change and and when you look at the school system uh being a, a prep school for prison we actually have to rethink the entire education system. It's not reforming it. Schooling and education is not synonymous. Public school as we know it isn't able to prepare kids for the future because we're teaching Wi-Fi kids with dial-up strategies. I'm a former elementary teacher and I know there's a lot of amazing teachers in there that are friends of mine who are doing great work under the system, but it's very difficult for them to prepare kids for 2040. All the resources I think that need to start happening in education have to do with giving kids better access to real financial uh, literacy education, access to science, tech, engineering, and math, access to entrepreneurship and business education. Because otherwise, school is set up only to make people employees. It's not set up to help people create and add value in the future. And, and when you look at the origins of schooling, as we've talked about before, since its origin, school was never set up to help uh, Black, Indigenous, and low-income communities thrive. In many ways, they're set up for our communities to suffer under the school to prison pipeline. The way I look at things, because I'm a techie, I wanna ensure that no child and no community is left behind. So I wanna ensure that with technology, the current injustices that exist, they're not amplified by the reality of a world becoming more digitally advanced. So that's kind of the work I'm doing uh, to build my own academy, education academy, that's able to prepare, prepare kids for the future work. I'm not just criticizing the education system, I'm creating my own system with options to partner with the current system in order to create a better reality for the for those on the margins. This is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. When we come back, Curtis shares how an ice cream that fell on the ground and the look of a six-year-old created an epiphany that changed his course in life. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million decade-long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? 
providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well-being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Curtis Carmichael. And Curtis, take us back to the time where the prize of your life, a bike that your dad gave you, what happened that day? And then a couple hours later, I guess, something else happened of great tragedy, but to a kid that was just about to bite into her ice cream cone. And how did those two stories come together to change your life and what I think is going to be many lives because of it? As a kid who grows up in poverty, you probably only get one, maybe two bikes throughout your lifetime based on resources. So th- this was the, the second bike I actually had that um, got stolen. And I remember coming back from the grocery store, riding my bike, had like 15 uh, grocery bags because I did all the grocery errands because my parents were at work. Uh, once I got home, I left my bike on the front porch, went upstairs, changed because I was sweaty, put the uh, groceries away. When I came back on the porch, it was gone. And in our community, we're taught to not a dwell. We're taught to create solutions. So as I was sitting on my porch crying, trying to figure out what to do, I noticed there's a girl with her father who actually drops her ice cream cone on the ground. And she starts crying and then the ice cream truck driver calls her back over and then gives her and her dad free ice cream cone to replace the ice cream that fell. And in that moment, I was like, "Uh uh-huh, inspiration. I need to get a free bike, a replacement bike. So I decided to actually create my own bike shop at 12 years old. So I went around all across Scarborough in Toronto and I was getting bikes from garbage cans, bikes that were locked up that were kind of left for long periods of time. So I took them and I came back to this backyard and only within a few hours, we had about 20 bikes in a backyard with about 12 grade school kids. Uh, half of them were mechanics. The other half were sales and marketers. And I was the founder with my friend, Emmy. So we basically had our own bike shop and we we're selling affordable bikes at an affordable cost and we got it for free. So essentially we were making a lot of profit. But we're able to help a lot of people who are in the food desert in our community get to the grocery store faster with a a bike solution. So we kind of took a solution with nothing when our bike got stolen and we created a business out of it. And and I remember writing the book, which is one of my my favorite parts of the book, is that we are innately creative and innovative. And we are startup founders and CEOs from the time we were born. We didn't have the names for it other than hustling. You can start a business on the street corner, out the trunk, on the curb. All of this gave us transferable skills to get legit and make a name for ourselves. We already had a lot from limited resources, and I can only imagine what we can create if we had more tools and resources to work with. And the people that often fill that vacuum in your neighborhood are the people that want to bring you in a gang, get you involved in selling drugs. And you talk about the time you spent doing that as well as part of the sort of growing in this sort of you know, hustler mentality. Share a little bit about what you learned about yourself and the economy and the marketplace, the time you spent doing that. Earlier in my my life, I was a child, a drug dealer. But to explain why, uh, we have conditions in our environment where if employers weren't getting back at you and schools were happy to push you out and your pockets were full of lint, it was the streets and the people you had accessible to you that embraced you. So when I couldn't get a job, uh, we couldn't get employed. Uh, when we had no community programs, um, when our parents are either working multiple jobs or they lose their job to, due to injury, uh, this leaves us with no other choice but to try to help out at home. So this kind of uh, brought me to the streets where the streets has a bit of compassion for you. 
if you're unable to pay for rent, they give you opportunities to find resources or money uh, to pay for rent. If you have college or university tuition, um, a lot of us hustled in order to pay tuition. That was a lot of money. So we didn't want to take a lot of loans. Um, we also had times where we helped people hustle uh, to pay the dentist bill to get braces because that's not included with healthcare, And to keep the light on, to buy new school clothes, to buy food, sports equipment. These are all the reasons I actually chose to hustle. I learned a lot about myself because in our communities, when every institution is pushing us out from school to employers to the police, we end up just being outside. And most of the times you're in a, an environment where these are the people that protect you from outsiders. So when your stomach's empty, they provide food for you. When you're not having a sense of purpose anywhere else, they give you a sense of purpose. Um, if you don't have uh, an ability to feel safe when you're walking through other communities, you have a group of people that protect you. So in that environment, they gave us a sense of friendship. If I'm honest, they gave us a bit of individual responsibility when you're outside with people in the streets. And they kind of gave us money in the immediate sense. So I always say that the streets uh, gave us something school did not. And many of us around us risk a lot of money and risk our lives in order to feed our kids or also for me to pay the bills. So that was me early on, but it taught me a lot about actual love. And though we were doing a lot of things that were illegal, a lot of us actually gave back and try to help other people not do it forever, but to do it as a short-term solution. So you build this community into a castle. You've got a moat that's surrounding you with, in terms of you taking care of each other. But time and time again, you talk about how law and order, the police force, would cross the moat, sometimes with no regard, often even with the wrong address, and this, this sense of intimidation. How did you keep up your spirits to carry on knowing that, again, somebody's always trying to push you back? To be honest, I, um, in my community, I always say we're raised by the village. So everyone in society that's usually demonized from our communities, uh, the people who are working multiple jobs, newcomers, uh, people who are curb servers, incarcerated people, a lot of them actually gave me hope. Uh, though we're all living in the same environment, a lot of the older people who are kind of caught up in, in the streets were actually trying to stir the younger kids to have a better life. Because once they got caught up, they realized that, um, there's a quote actually that they realized from uh, Miriam Kaba. She said, cages uh, confine people. They don't co uh, confine the conditions that facilitate the mentalities that perpetuate violence. So they understood that though prison and, and the police are caging people, the realities we still live under are still happening. So I think what gave me a lot of hope was my mom, the grandparents, the inmates who actually taught me how to read, who sent me books from the inside of prison. Because in literacy, uh, from my mom, she was big on literacy and, and technology. Uh, the, a lot of the books I read from black women and a lot of the, the books I got from my, my inmate friends were actually from black women. And they actually taught me that in my community, I need to focus more on what I can do, not what I can't do. And they gave me a, a way to describe the experience I was living under. Because once you have the words for it, now you're able to figure out how to overcome it. You talk a lot about mentors. And the first one I want to mention is this gentleman called Nipsey. Tell me why he means so much to you in terms of how he goes about his life. Nipsey Hussle is the best example in human history at elevating the social and economic fabric of a disenfranchised community. To contextualize his story, he's a gang member, part of the Rolling 60s Crip Gang in South Central California. How, why was he part of this gang culture? And he was trying to explain that in this community, you don't have many opportunities. There's conditions that are created like my neighborhood where they put you in positions to survive by any means. But he realized through dropping out of high school and started to read books and go to different workshops and conferences, 
he started to learn about finances, how to build credit, how to save, how to invest, how to start your own business, how to invest in technology. He ended up becoming an independent recording artist. And he had a, a concept called All Money In, No Money Out, which was actually his record label company name. And he actually used all his money and invested it back in his community. And by the end of his lifetime at 33, he had over $200 million in assets. He went legit. He wasn't doing any criminal stuff anymore. He wasn't dealing. He was all about music and building the community. He had over 25 businesses in his community from clothing stores, tech centers, business incubators, food market. He had the whole nine and he employed people who couldn't get jobs anywhere else who looked like him. A lot of other black people in the community, brown people in the community, people from low-income communities. And then he gave us an understanding that you're able to bridge the gap from the streets to Silicon Valley only if you're able to invest back in the community. And he believed in the mentality of success isn't making it out. It's actually making your community better. So I kind of follow his example, doing right by your people, but also not talking bad on your people, always finding ways to help your neighborhood, regardless of what's happening. Speaking of Nipsey Hussle, when we were chatting in the pre-interview, you shared some advice that he gives to artists and athletes that I think is advice for all of us. Tell us what it was. He believed that life is a marathon, not a race. Though we have setbacks that may momentarily keep us from accomplishing our dreams, it's all part of the journey. And he knows that life actually rewards people who stay authentic, stay true to themselves in their community. And it also honors people who have endurance and it rewards people who have perseverance and stay, in his words, 10 toes down. A marathon is just about seeing long term, seeing a vision, understanding that nothing really worthwhile happens overnight and just sticking to your script long enough to make something real happen. Laying a brick every day instead of trying to build a brick wall. Just lay a brick every day. Eventually you look up, you're gonna have a brick wall. My guest is Curtis Carmichael, is the author of the book Butterflies of the Trenches. One day my bet is you'll vote for him. And Curtis, tell me a little bit about how the athletic scholarship came about and your shot at the CFL. I remember being in my community with um, uh, one of my boys, Dre. He was incarcerated at the time and, and he actually got me off the street um, from selling at a young age. So uh, when I was in high school, he's like, hey, you can go to university, you know. I figured out how to get my grades up, the right courses to take. I'm like, you know, I'm going to keep playing football. So everyone in my neighborhood pulled together money to pay for all my sports costs, to travel and to, to get equipment. And then I ended up getting a scholarship at Queens University. It gave me time to think about my neighborhood by not being in my neighborhood. And a lot of the school, like 95% of the school was uh, white and, and from a wealthier neighborhood. I and mean, my community was pretty much all black and brown kids. The only difference was resources and opportunity that they had that we didn't. We all had immense value and talent and skills to be successful in the real world. And I started to realize that like access to information was class-based. So things they knew, I didn't know because in our neighborhood, we weren't having those conversations. So the CFL pays attention to you. So you didn't just go to school playing football. You were good enough, as you said, to the very least make the practice roster, maybe even have a shot at it. But one day you woke up and said, playing football is not why I'm on this planet. How did that come about? I started to realize football isn't my passion. My passion is my community. And I realized, do I want to have a short life and be popular as a pro athlete? Or do I want to have a long life and have a great impact? So I decided to hang up my cleats, uh, told the teams I wasn't interested. And when I came back to my neighborhood, it was frozen in time. Nothing had changed. It was getting worse. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to do something about it. The neighborhood uh, community organization lost about 100K in funding that year. And I said, you know what? 
I have to do something crazy to get people to listen and raise money. So I decided to uh, take uh, Rick Hansen's and uh, Terry Fox's journey to use sport as an activist tool to raise awareness. I wanted to talk about disenfranchised communities and, and systemic racism and how we can do more to help these neighborhoods. So I decided to bike across the country in 60 days, and then we raised 100K in 60 days for after-school programs across the city of Toronto. Um, which was uh, one of the highlights of my life to find a way to give back. This wasn't an easy bike stroll. I mean, you talk about how hard it was not to quit. To be honest, I wanted to quit day two. <laughs> um, I think when I started the ride, um, nothing really prepares you to ride in the mountains when you're training in Ontario. So when I was out there, I actually wanted to quit. At the same moment of me riding on my bike, a account on Instagram was created that added me and it said, cheers for Curtis. And it was kids from different low-income communities, uh, specifically black and brown communities across Toronto, sending me encouraging videos saying, hey, Curtis, when you ride, you're riding for me. So that's kind of what kept me going where I'm like, you know what? Every day on this ride, we're going to dedicate it to people who live in disenfranchised communities to remind our whole team and remind Canadians that it's not about Curtis. It was about, li about the lives of people who are living day to day who are going through a lot worse things than me riding up the mountain. So you chose the town of Africville. Why did you pick the town? Tell us why it meant so much for you to, to say that was the end of that journey and the beginning of the next. I have to shout out my team on that, Bly, Trey, uh, Jerry, Addison. So Africville is a, is a community that's older than Canada itself. It's a settlement of black loyalists from America who had a flourishing community where they owned their homes, they had their own school, their church, their own businesses. And... In the 60s, the government decided to just bulldoze their homes in the middle of the night. It, it was an act of racism. And in 1970, Africville was no more. And it took Canada about 40 years to actually acknowledge it in 2010. The reason we finished there was because we met a lot of people from Africville when we finished, people who grew up there. And it meant a lot for us to continue the fight that they were fighting. They were still fighting for justice. They were still believing that the community has immense talent and value. So we wanted to finish it there to signify that Africville is a community that the same thing happened to thousands and hundreds of thousands of other black communities across Canada and hundreds of thousands of indigenous communities where the land has been stolen and taken from them for the source of, of capital. My last question, Nipsey Hussle, your prophet and your mentor said, if you don't know who you are, it's tough to find a place like home. Now, the book in hand with a, a higher purpose, do you know who you are now? And what do you think the next 10 years will bring in terms of what you will bring to the world? I call myself, I am a revolutionary. So what a revolutionary means to me is someone that brings about drastic change. I'm deciding to create my own way of doing things. So I'm currently in the process of building uh, something called Source Code Academy Canada, which is going to be Canada's first uh, culture-focused innovation and entrepreneurship academy that will prepare Black, Indigenous, and low-income communities for the future of work. And I want to be able to bridge that educational gap and the digital divide between the streets and what I call the new Silicon Valley. I always believe that the power is always the people. You can actually bring about drastic change. And the way that you actually find yourself is to lose yourself in service of others. I always end my podcast with the three things that I take away that I will think about and talk about and share with others. First is Ubuntu, the sense of I am because we are, is something that is pouring through your veins. It's your energy. You radiate out in the marketplace. It's not about I, it's about we and what we can do together. The second thing is that you're a re revolutionary. It's not about titles. It's about impacting and affecting change, that, that you're not going to sit back and hope that one day they fund you, one day they don't. What you're going to do is impact change in a way that 
the we again pulls themselves up, escapes the mud in the trenches that they're in now and, and rise above it, as you say, grow roses in the concrete. And the third thing is that you're just so committed to young people, financial literacy, teaching them STEM, unlocking that creativity, that ownership, that innovation, and that entrepreneurship that's inside all of us. And for all of those three, and much, much more, it's been an honor chatting with you. Honestly, a pleasure. I, I, I thank you for your words, for your spirit. Joining me now on Chatter That Matters is Mark Beckles. He's the Vice President of Social Impact and Innovation RBC. Mark, uh, great to see you again. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the great work that you're doing. Oh, I appreciate it. So listen, what is a Vice President of Social Impact and Innovation doing at a bank? I have the opportunity to lead a significant body of work that really supports our community investment programs, whether it is supporting artists through our Emerging Artists Project, whether it is leading RBC Future Launch, which is our signature commitment of $500 million over 10 years to help empower uh, youth for the future of work, or RBC Tech for Nature that really is focused on bringing technological solutions to environmental issues that quite frankly address and really sort of drive uh, climate change. So when I was chatting with Curtis Carmichael, he wrote a book called Butterflies in the Trenches. He describes himself as growing up in the hood in Scarborough. He's trying to lead to break the circle of poverty by letting this creativity that flows through these areas and make it an, an opportunity f- to move the community forward. Are you doing any work in that part of Canada that sort of supports that same higher purpose? Through RBC Future Launch in particular, we are investing uh, over $500 million over the next 10 years to really equip uh, young people with job-ready networks, with access to work experience, with access to supports and services to enable their uh, mental health and, and resilience, to equip them with access to 21st century skills and, and skill building opportunities. And it is within that pillar that we are actually focused on what we determine to be the, the power C skills, communications, collaboration, cultural dexterity, critical uh, thinking, and of course, creativity. We begin to unlock what I consider to be latent talent within communities that have been left outside the beltway. We can bring that talent, that creativity, that that human capital inside and really unlock the the talent and capability of so, so many young people, coast to coast to coast. My my show, I've talked to Indigenous people. I've talked to people that were immigrants that might have come with a a doctorate and 10 years experience and denied an opportunity to work because of bureaucracy. And certainly talking to people like Curtis Carmichael. They tend to be because they're so disenfranchised that they build this wall and they're not willing to necessarily trust that you're actually going to help them. A promise made is a promise kept. What's your strategy, and not just for RBC, but for others that are really willing to collaborate and work and to unleash this creativity, to build trust so that people know that this is one country, in your case, one planet, and we're all in it together? For as long as Canada has opened its borders to immigrants, and we are a nation of immigrants, it is unfortunate that we have taken as long and continue to take as long as we have to understand the immigrant journey, to understand the immigrant story, and to unlock the capabilities and skills that they bring to this country in a faster way and in a more intentional way. 
And I think as a country, we are getting better at that. And one of the reasons I think we're getting better at that is that technology is also playing a more significant role in understanding, you know, where we can support new immigrants. For example, RBC provides um, an app called Arrive that really helps improve the settlement experience for newcomers to this country. Really helping them to integrate faster and to your point, Tony, if someone comes to this country as an engineer or, or a skilled professional of some kind, it actually shortens their time to getting into careers of their choice, purchasing a home, getting their kids into school, understanding uh, the environments in which they live. And that is just one example, but I think Technology is allowing people to participate faster in the Canadian economy and therefore integrate faster. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. This episode is also available as a podcast. Find it using your iHeartRadio Canada app.